Hello and welcome to the Poetry Hood podcast. Farah Shamma here. I'm very happy to be here for this episode. Uh, just to give you uh, a glimpse of the setting, uh, we are at my place in Sharjah, overlooking the Buhayrat uh, Khalid, and the sea is uh, just on our right. And I'm here with Dorian Paul Rogers, poet educator, hip-hop artist, um, founder of Rooftop Rhythms, an, an events curator, and also a father, and many, many other things. And friend. And Come th- that was oh, the last I'm one. I'm sorry. And most importantly, an old-time friend. We go back around nine or ten years when I was in university, and we haven't seen each other in, in a very long time. And that's mainly why I'm very happy to be here. It's to be able to talk to you. And I think listeners know when a conversation is a real conversation. Mm. Even if it's recorded, sometimes we try our best to forget that we are being recorded, we're talking. And I think this is what the Poetry Hood podcast is to me. Uh, It's this free flow of conversation uh, that just takes us where we want to go. Um, So thank you for being here to start with. I think one of the main questions that that kept popping up in my mind when I was, you know, thinking about this uh, moment of us talking was the question of mediation. I see you so much as a mediator. You know, you're a curator, you're an MC, and ever since I met you, I always saw you, and especially when I was much younger, I always saw you as this person that made things happen, like a bridge. And only recently, I started thinking. But Dorian is an artist himself, and I don't think I've been focusing on the artist as much as I have been focusing on the mediator. And I think this question really intrigues me because it's a deep level. Being a mediator is a very deep thing. It's like a prophet, you know, holding a, a message and, and doing something. But I wanted to, to, to ask you about this balance, you know, between the artist and the mediator, your general thoughts about that. I've never been asked that question before. That's an amazing question. I think that has a lot of, to do with my journey uh, and growth as a young man. Uh, when I first started poetry at 18, I definitely was all about me. Even though I may have come off as a humble performer, I saw the ego come into many aspects, and I still deal with it today and trying to fight it off and force humility. But I always tell people the story of when I first started with Black on Black Rhyme, the group that I learned about uh, in Tallahassee as a freshman in university or sophomore, I was just blown away. I mean, you would have one poet who was a comedic poet. One was really like a hip hop style poet. One was a narrative, you know, a prose style poet. And I was a sponge and I was trying to soak everything in and be the best version of me. But what I noticed is when people were performing poetry, I couldn't really empathize in the moment with their work. So someone could be doing a poem about their mother having cancer, but I was more so focused on, oh, I like how they did that technique. I'm going to use that and put that on my tool belt. And a mentor at the time, named uh, John Warford, he pulled me to the side and said the the two components of discontent is comparison and attachment. And he walked away. Mm. And I said, wow, this whole time I've been comparing and attaching myself to other people's styles and try, in, in, in an attempt to better myself. And it just like took a big load off of me to understand that 
that's when what's keeping me from being happy is the constant pressure of trying to take things from other people and to add it to my style. And so that was like a lesson of humility. And then I would constantly go through certain phases or uh, experiences in my life where I realized that I was still focused on like being the best or outperforming people. And as I grew as a young man and started getting more into events curation, I found some pleasure in like being off stage or being in the crowd and making things happen for other people because Black and Black Rhyme also created opportunities for me. And so there was something empowering in the fact that it's something beautiful about bringing people together. You're you're an events organizer as well. And so maybe you could also speak on that and share your perspective. But I just feel like when your true personality comes out and you let go of like all of the personal aspirations that you want to be the best, you want to focus on you realize that like there's so much that so many more blessings that can come with creating opportunities for others, Mm. whether that's the spiritual blessings or the networking blessings or whatever. But it just, I find so much pleasure now in playing the background and seeing artists, whether they give credit or not, we know Allah gives the glory to those things. But when you humble yourself, it's a special feeling. And so I don't, I've never really consciously thought about the mediator versus the performer. I'm always willing to perform. When Rooftop first started, there may have been limited poets, so I may perform three times. Yeah. But I didn't find pleasure in that. I was hoping that it would get to a point where it is now, where there's really not space for me. And so if I'm needed, I can perform, but I think an MC really needs to carry on the event yeah. and be concise. And so that's that's a big part of my journey as I'm still growing, but I definitely would say I find more pleasure and providing platforms or mediating, as you call it. Yeah. Do you relate to that since you're also a performer and events organizer? I think it's an ongoing question. When you, you when you feel like your artistic journey makes you self-centered, I think it's one of the most important things to self-doubt. And I think the self-doubt makes you look inwards and then outwards. You start looking around you and saying, why do I do this? Do I do this to connect or do I do this to get attention? And I think these are questions that I always ask myself. And uh, I think the pleasure I get from putting things together can also be self-centered in a way, you know? And I think there's another layer of doubt that comes again. Like, am I putting this event to get a pat on the shoulder? Or am I actually putting this event because I want uh, to give people platforms to express themselves? Because I see uh, that self-expression is really a cure. It heals so many people, so many things. Uh, just like I find, you know, I find that it heals me when I write or when I share a text that I write and, and so on. So I don't think I, I have one answer because I think, especially after this year, uh, event planning really changed and... And even our ideas of ourselves as artists and what we can do in a world that feels so fragile, you know, uh, a virus can really cancel all events. And that's why I say it's a process of self-doubt constantly. But I want to know about your work as an artist. I mean, I know you you launched an EP recently mm. and you have a, a, a poetry book collection that's also an adult coloring book. Mm. And I want to know more about them, maybe in relation to that question. So it's an adult coloring book. Uh, maybe we can start talking about the adult coloring book. 
because it also feels like there's a mediator here. You know, it's an interactive book. Mm. You're telling people yeah. read, but also reflect and color. And so I want you to tell us more about it. Uh, the Million Mile Stare, uh, it's called. Well, the mediator, I, I just feel like uh, I want to get to that, but it's just so much to unpack with what you're talking about. I think the process of this book that we'll talk about is a lot about me being vulnerable as an adult and allowing myself to be so. Um, a lot of my colleagues in poetry, when I first got in spoken word, heavily in slam and started winning competitions and competing heavily in the early 2000s, I would have friends who would come to me who are, you know, contemporaries and say, man, I love how you can think of a title like alienation, which is playing as if I'm talking about extraterrestrial life, but really it's a play on words where I'm talking about illegal you know, what they call legal aliens or immigration. And so I try to humanize this concept of aliens. And so friends would come up to me and be like, why didn't I think of that? I, you always create poems where why didn't I think of that? But the same friend, his name is Asian Sampson. He, he said, well, why don't I ever hear anything about like, who are you? Mm. And I couldn't answer that. And, and I think um, that goes back to childhood, uh, seeking attention as a biracial um, child mixed with black, white, and other, you know, other ethnicities. I wasn't really accepted growing up mostly in South Georgia and America, as there's still like a lot of polarization with color and things. And so I felt misunderstood most of my life in adolescence. And when I found poetry, it definitely was, I think, subconsciously, the ego came into place, but like, I found my voice. And I wanted to finally get attention. And so I was very much so, and older people saw that in me, like he's a good guy, but he likes the attention. And that rubs people the wrong way. And so as I grew as a man and felt more validated through my work, I think I naturally grew into maybe who I am naturally, which is someone who strives for humility. And I realized that you can almost get more recognition indirectly and so you're right. You have to really look deeply like, is that a part of the ego as well by planning events that may get uh, recognition? But mentors always tell me, like, you'll always go further in life by creating platforms for people. And so that's up to you to figure out, is that because of ego? Is it because of opportunism or is it because your spiritual upbringing where you know that all of this goes back to spirituality? Right. Like you said, positive self-expression, your voice. The talent of poetry. I believe people are born poets, whether you discover it mm. later in life or not. When you see a leaf on a tree and it's dangling by a spider web, you know, a poet will come up with something deep, like an umbilical cord, yeah, and, yeah. you know, something. And a normal person will walk by and just tear the leaf. And, you know, and so we see the world differently. And so I don't want to get too deeply into religion uh, or spirituality unless it goes there. But I believe that Allah blesses people with the talent or the gift of poetry so you can bring more people to Allah. Mm. And so I say all that to say that it's a, it's an interesting question about the, the process of mediation or your own personal brand of poetry. I've always created as an artist, but I feel like the most success or the most personal fulfillment has been in the creation or the assistance in creating a platform and we all, Jamil, you included, have all collectively built a platform, which I think rivals many cities around the world as far or countries around mm. the world as far as the presence of poetry. Mm. But segueing into my book, I never thought of it like that either. But since I also believe uh, in poetry as healing, I wanted to create something that was unique as far as poetry being paired with adult coloring. 
Um, but now that you mentioned it, it is an act of service because I want the audience to engage. And while I'm talking about my childhood and some angst and how I believe that impacts our lives as adults, I want other adults to read that. And possibly, although they may not relate to my personal story, that may be while coloring or meditating through the process of Mm. coloring and rehabilitation that they tap into their own lives. So it is also an unintended, I guess, or a subconscious act of service to mediate and help others. Not that my poetry is so deep that it will help you, (laughs) but just through me telling my personal stories that that you may then tap into, well, how did this affect me? When this happened at seven, my other family members said they didn't affect them or they weren't traumatized, but you have the right to feel however you feel and no one should tell you otherwise. And if you can work that out through literature or poetry or coloring, then that book was a success to me. Yeah. And can you tell me and our listeners more about being a biracial child, especially people that are not very familiar with the States? Uh, What can you tell us? And also tell us if that's really where uh, the book comes from, the inspiration for the book or most of your stories about childhood. Yeah, I'm still unpacking a lot of that, to be honest with you. So for those uh, who are wondering, I'm the the lightest person in this room right now. So <laughs> Farah is uh, olive complective and Jamil is bronzed and I'm very light, you know. So although I'm saying biracial, multiracial, I am a very pale complected person. And a lot of people don't know how to view me. You know, Arabs often see me until I say hot dog or start, <laughs> or start speaking in a southern English accent you will have arabs who accept me and think that i'm arab yeah um i've been to costa rica and people thought i could pass possibly for spanish um so as i travel the world i realize that i look like a lot of people around the world but growing up in america was difficult when i was in uh, i was born in cleveland ohio middle class lower income neighborhood with mostly all black children and I never remembered up until eight years old being called white boy I think there's something about poverty or struggling where no matter what you are you're like accepted as a part of that community but I did not see that when you move to more affluent white communities you are kind of the token and they will make you know or let you know who you are or which how you're different and so we moved to South Georgia when I was eight years old and I remember being called nigger Mm. Uh, the day that we pulled up in the loading truck. Mm. Uh, my father is, you know, lighter complected, but still obviously like a lighter skinned black person. Mm. And we have deep histories on all sides of my family. So my father has white because of slavery. And, you know, I won't get into detail, but you can mm-hmm. imagine. Yeah, if you want to, yeah. Yeah, the white influence is that uh, my great-grandmother we believe it was raped by uh, the, the person who owned the land, and she was a sharecropper. And then we have Seminole Indian from that side, as well as the Native Americans at the time, or the indigenous people, sometimes mixed with black people and had their own servants, but not known as such a brutal slavery. My mother's Polish-American, and our ancestors died in the Holocaust. Mm. So I have a lot of suffering and struggle all over, and the best thing I can tell you is I'm mixed. Yeah. <laughs> but... The interesting dynamic about America is that my birth certificate says black. Mm. Because in American history, if you had 1% of black, you were not of them. You were an octomaroon or a quadroon, which gets into math, which is one-eighth. But if you were 1% of anything else, you were not white anymore. 
Um, And that's something that I embrace. I'm not ashamed of that, but that confuses people, right? Because if you ask me, what am I mixed with? My mother always said, I'm okay with you liking your black side, but like, what about your Polish side? You know, when you tell somebody what you are or who you are, I never understood that that is defined by color or ethnicity because that's not who I am. But I also related more so, I felt more accepted by uh, black children. I was called white boy by black children when I moved to the South, but not like as a racial epithet. Um, White kids would call me the N word, you know, and with hatred. Mm. Um, And so I always felt more accepted by the black girls. When I went to middle school, they thought I was cute. The white girls thought I was goofy. I'm still goofy. (laughs) But, um, you know, I embrace that. So if someone asked me even to this day, what are you? I'll say I'm black mixed with this because that is the reality of what my birth certificate says and it's something I embrace. But I think a lot of people have conflict with that, whether that's in the black community and they see me. I may speak on racial theory on the Internet and say something critical about, you know, the black uh, community or something in black media. I do it from a perspective of consciousness and love. Yeah. But someone would look at me and say, well, who's this white boy? Yeah. Is he a sellout? Why is he critiquing us publicly? Mm. And it's so it's so unique and interesting. But I think um, I could talk to you about an hour about being biracial. But I think the biggest thing or multiracial. But a friend of mine in high school around 10th or 11th grade said, why are you always standing with other kids in the hallway? You know, when you walk to class, you'll stop and sit, stand by the basketball players. They still shake your hand. They're not like, what is this guy doing here? But I would always try to fit into circles like I didn't know who I was and I wanted to be accepted. And I didn't think that was obvious. And that friend said, if you just did your own thing, like just go to class, you know, handle your business, dress the way you want to. So I started dressing up in like button up polos and creasing my pants. And actually, that's when I started getting the most attention from girls or people wanting to actually hang out with me is when I just started trying to find out who is Dorian outside of ethnicity and everything who is the individual of dorian and that came later for me in life i'm I'm sure everybody goes through that in adolescence but that was closer to the end of high school and um i've I've dealt a lot there's a lot of pain still with some of the racism i faced as a child and bullying because of my color or lack of color yeah (laughs) but um i'm thankful It's, it's it's made me a better person and i'm i'm naturally more accepting of people regardless of their background because I know that I've been stereotyped just by how I look so it's it probably has been the impetus for me moving abroad for me uh, being so culturally sensitive and welcoming and appropriate that's the biggest thing when you move to another country in the training they say you know can you accept other cultures and I was like yeah I am other cultures so it was an easy transition for me to come and learn a new culture and respect it yeah I mean I uh, recently read when the Black Lives Matter movement uh, was happening, and you know, the whole world was um, talking about it, especially on social media. I think it made us all ask ourselves, uh, you know, that you know, this is not just a question in the states. This is, it's. In I stu- noticed that in, yeah. in Arab media, in Arab they media, were questioning about definitely African racism, Af- African racism uh, that is present every single Afro-Arabs, day. Arabs, yeah. yeah, in in that was lives. a beautiful thing to see. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I read um, a book called White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo, which was really good. I actually studied that uh, in London in one of my courses. And just, you know, seeing how institutionalized racism is and how it's in every one of us and how we all need to unpack it. Yeah. All of us, because we look at people in certain ways 
because of the social stratification of how the world is and how salaries are and how, you know. And I think, you know, you did it, uh, maybe it was more brutal because you had to uh, ask yourself these questions maybe early on. And, you know, um, but I recently started thinking about this. It's not a question that has always been in my life. But I think, yeah, this is what uh, the Black Lives Matter movement did. It triggered some questions, you know, obvious questions they seemed when they came out, but they're not that, they're not always present. Uh, we don't ask ourselves these things. And I recently actually was asked about the brutality of one's experience compared to another. And a darker complected black person question, I believe from Sudan, question mm -hmm. me speaking about some of the things I had experienced. And I had to understand that as a darker complected uh, person speaking to me, my level of what I can experience is may not be as brutal as theirs, right? Because I can pass. Passing is a choice. So subconsciously, I may pass in the sense that I have been pulled over and profiled by police officers. I think I was speaking on that situation. And that person was saying, you never experience racism from an officer like darker complected people do. And I tried to say that that has... I, I understand what you're saying, but that does not negate my brutality that I've experienced. So I think we have to be careful. I know you didn't mean that when you said yours was, may have been more brutal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think we have to get to a place in humanity where Fela has a right to talk about whatever brutality she's faced and her healing. And I have the right to talk about mine, whatever. I'll talk about stuff from my childhood. And my sister, who grew up with me, said, I didn't experience the same thing you experienced. Absolutely. And I had to convince my family, my mother, who's kind of has been in denial when I talk about abandonment that I felt. My father um, speaks on this, but he's a recovering drug addict of like 35 years. Mm -hmm. So in the 1980s, he had cocaine, crack addiction, heroin. Uh, in the 90s and 2000, opioid, you know, painkillers. But he dealt with that while also for a lot of his life being a minister, like preaching and ministering and giving out food in the community. So it was like um, a monster and a saint. Yeah. And I dealt with a lot of angst because of what my father went through and I, me not feeling like I had that attention from him. And so my mother would say, well, I feel like we did a great job. And I said, you know, I did have two parents in the household. My father was not always consistent, but I'm very thankful for what you all did for me as parents. But I have, I have the right to speak on my own mental health and how I was impacted by some of those things as a child. As a poet, I think I'm cursed with a great memory. Mm. So I actually remembered a lot of traumatic things that were traumatic to me, but maybe others either don't remember them or don't like to speak on them. And I have the right, no one can tell me that you cannot share that. I'll do that with the consent of my father yeah, yeah. because we are good friends and I, I want to tell my testimony just like he goes out and speaks about addiction and dependency and things like that. So it goes back to the, the comment you made about what's more brutal. Um, you, we can argue that until the sun sets Absolutely. about who's more brutal than others. Absolutely. But if we've experienced brutality, we all should have a right to add that to the fabric of the conversation. Absolutely. I think, I think that's one of, I mean, we can segue into poetry and we will talk about what's in the book. I would like you to tell mm -hmm. our, our listeners what's um, in the coloring book. But I think, you know, when you, sometimes listen to to a story and you're like ah that's not really a problem is it uh you know we, we all see that and i think i think this also needs a lot of questions mm -hmm. i mean 
especially when we feel like, hey, we our life is not that difficult. You know, we have a roof, we you know we eat, we're okay, we have salaries. You know, and and I think this question of privilege is always now is more and more. I think more people are aware that there is this thing called white privilege. There is this thing called privilege in general, depending on where you're born and what you do, and. Yeah, I think we can talk about this for really long. What is more brutal? Who has it more difficult? But it stunts your growth. If you're on a mental health journey due to depression or abandonment or trauma, PTSD, which I think children experience, even right now with COVID, that's a valid concern if a child wants to speak on that. If another child says, well, you grew up in a wealthy household, you didn't really experience. That stunts that person's mental health journey. So they may internalize that like, yeah. That's not a problem. Everybody else has. And that person may never go on to mindfulness and mental health because someone else told them that that's not as bad as someone else's. So I think that's a damaging. I'm Absolutely. not saying you're saying that. Absolutely. But yeah, I think I the understand. conversation is so needed because we all, you could be a white child in suburbia. You may have some PTSD. You know, you still could have been abused by someone in your family. You have the right to share that, although that may not be the same as another person's racial trauma. But you have the right to, yeah. to have a voice and a story and to share it so that maybe you can save someone else's lives because white children in suburbia are committing suicide. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, still I think, valid. I think the key is to to value what you, you're experiencing, your journey, but also look around. And it's, it's, a, it's a balance. It's a tuning process. It's about looking around and looking at your story and looking at how your story is not in vacuum. And I think this is where things become uh, more contextual and you wouldn't devalue your journey. I think, yeah, you're right. It's very damaging to say, yeah, that's not really a problem because I'm fine. You know? I wonder if in Arab culture, though, there may be some um, parallels in the sense that like in black culture, due to slavery and the terrible history, a lot of it had to be forgotten. Like out of sight, you'll hear things like out of sight, out of mind, or mm. don't question a man of God. Like if there's abuse happening in churches, well, you, I was always told you don't question the man of God, but that may not be in religious text. That's something that was used to cover up shame. and th- So I'm sure it probably parallels across cultures, but maybe could you tell me in Palestinian or Arab culture, do you sometimes see with the older people, if there was abuse going on under the table, do people use expressions like, don't ever mention what happens outside of the house or Absolutely. out of sight, out of mind? And I think these are coping mechanisms, and a lot of times people don't heal because they're brainwashed to believe that this is something either we don't talk about or like, get over it, you know. This happened in your childhood, but there are so many ripples of things that are, if they're unresolved in childhood, I see that they take root in adulthood, if not addressed. I think um, I'm, I'm not going to talk, you know, on behalf of okay. uh, the Arab world or, or, or Palestine. It's, so, it's, it's too so much. It's too many yeah. countries. And, and uh, but I mean, from a personal experience and maybe from stories around me, I think Men are giving, given a lot of excuses, the patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did that, it's fine. He hit her, it's fine. He was angry, things like that. He loves her. He yeah. loves her, but yeah, it's tough love. And it can go downhill, right? Uh, uh, it can be verbal abuse, but then it can get like honor killings and, and so on. And these things are usually quickly forgotten about, not addressed. And there is a certain uh, fragility you know, when men are confronted, they're like, no, you know, uh, my wife works, things like that. And I think these are some questions that need unpacking. Uh, I needed to do them mm-hmm. in my personal life. And it wasn't easy at all. Uh, and even just uh, understanding why I have so much anger 
towards certain men. I'm like, mm-hmm. <gasps> you know, it can make my veins pop. That's mm-hmm. how angry I get. And I realize, oh my God, this is anger I've been holding for years and years. And it's just inherited, mm-hmm. you know, and I actually did therapy to understand this anger. And uh, the therapist was was um, wise enough, you know, to let me look around uh, at different family members, uh, my aunts and my uncles. And, and she made me ask all these questions. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, and I wrote, I wrote about it. And I and when I wrote it was cathartic. Yeah. It was like, oh, my God, the pain. But also what happened is that I realized this pain is not just mine. The patriarchy hurts, <laughs> you know, it hurts and it's been hurting us universally. And when you realize, oh, my God, this pain, maybe I didn't live something so terrible. But, you know, the more you feel you're part of uh, the world, the more egoless you feel. You're like, this pain is resonant. And you're a poet and you have the duty to speak on behalf of those exactly. who, can't, who don't know how to share. right? Exactly. And I think that's where you realize, oh, my God, even if my story is not that big compared to, but it's an echo and it's it's a small part of something that happens everywhere. But there goes a comparison, even though my story is not. No, and we yeah. all have to check ourselves. So but I'm I, not, I don't know. I, I like this. Yeah. No, but I think it's not a comparison. It's when you feel it's part of a whole. That's what I'm trying to say. I know, but you initially said, even though ah, it may not though, be as, yeah. as this, you're a strong-minded person, so you can fight past that and still feel like you have a voice to share. But if someone has lower self-esteem, right, they may say, well, my experience is not as, as this. And yeah, so then they point. may say, well, I won't say anything. Then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's just something, when they told me that, when the mentor told me, you know, comparison and attachment are the two keys to discontent. It, I still try to unpack that because you can think about it in every aspect of your life. Like, when do you compare or attach your happiness to other people's validation? And so it's an ongoing thing, but I just stopped you there because I noticed you said it, but I understand it wasn't fully with yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. And I think speak. it's, yeah, yeah. I think it's because we spoke about it and pointed it out. I think it's really feeling that it's resonance, as I was saying before. It's, it's something that I unpacked. It's my journey. And, and, and also it's the resonance that made me feel like it's part of a bigger question. And that's when the micro and macro come together. Right. And I think that's what I mean. It's less about the comparison. It's more about feeling like our journeys cross mm-hmm. and our pains cross. Yeah. And they're usually due to a socio-political, historical um, you know, phenomenon. And I think that's where it, it got, that's where even writing becomes, writing and sharing writing. I enjoy more when I feel that, yes, I'm sharing it because people might understand and feel and it's resonant and it's contextual. I think our journeys are similar, too, because I know your work has evolved. But when I met you as a younger person, you did a great job of like speaking for people. So you would speak a lot about, you know, the Palestinian dynamic of injustices you all have faced for centuries and then similar to my work since I knew I came from oppressed backgrounds my thing I felt like I was a storyteller a griot so like the majority of my material was speaking about miseducation disenfranchisement Mm -hmm. and that led friends to say well but what is Dorian's story and I think more when I hear more of your work now you share Feta's story yeah doesn't mean you're doesn't mean you're not a voice of you know your people and you speak in general about topics but I think it's would you agree that it's important to have that layering 
where you can be a voice for others, but also share your voice and what is your personal story to the level in which you're comfortable. And so I say all that to say that I know there's a fine line. Some people get offended when you share your personal trauma because they feel like um, that's, per. you know, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you've ever heard that in the community. Yeah, uh, maybe. I'm interested yeah, when yeah. I say Arab, I know you can't speak for all Arab, but when I think about Arab poets or Arabic art, performance art, I'm sure there are going to be traditional people in the older generations that say, you know, that's your family's business, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm not sitting here saying to report out and say, uncle so-and-so hit me when I was five, but I think it is important to share, uh, for a person to share, uh, catharsis may include sharing personal experiences to get it out there, you know, um, and to address it. And so I've, I wouldn't say I've gotten backlash, but close friends may have heard a poem and say, are you sure you want to talk about that topic? And I say, you know, it's a part of my healing, but also if it can help one person, you know, you know how strong poetry is. I'm sure I know people have come up to me and other poets and say, you know, I was suicidal and I came to a poetry show and I realized like I heard a topic about abuse or suicide prevention and it's it helped me to choose to live. And so I think it is important for people to share their stories and not where it's not just why did I think about why didn't I think about that poem? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also like, wow, I look up to her so much. I think her life is perfect. But if she shares something that's human. It makes people relate to you more. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah, when yeah. You can Definitely, share? I think. So that's like the evolution, though. I think, I think of my that's work the too. evolution uh, for sure. I mean, I started. I mean, the, the poems that um, got me, uh, you know, it that went viral yeah, yeah. were really uh, general, broad, yeah. broad, just uh, amazing, criticizing a certain. Uh, uh, again, phenomenon. Um, there was the how must I believe? Yeah, yeah. You know, like differentiating faith from, um, you know, I'm no like, Palestinian. Yeah, yeah, and then there's I'm no Palestinian and just the diaspora and these questions. And then and then it becomes maybe a bit more introspective because, especially when you get some recognition, a lot of questions start, you know, you can start asking questions. Why am I doing this? What do I really want to say? Am I just writing to get this recognition? Right. And I think, yes, it got more introspective and writing became more of um, a way to understand what's going on and what's going on became more you know, on a smaller scale. What's going on in, in my family, in my workplace, um, at my university when I'm studying, mm. uh, my uh, dynamic with my you know, very academic professor mm -hmm. uh, that uh, looks at me in a certain way because I'm not very academic. And then that's where, you know, and then you realize, oh my God, but that is, that, that little interaction can, you know, make us question academia yeah. in general because there are so many professors like that. So I, I did a piece about that, for example. So yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And the work could actually unintentionally come off less preachy when it's like general topics of whatever that we were discussing in the beginning of our work, when it goes more introspective, it may have the same underlying message, but when a person shares their story, all you do is share your story. So if someone says, well, what are you saying? Palestinians don't have the right, you know, the rights yeah. or whatever. Well, I'm telling you my story and this is something that really happened to me. You take it how you take it. Exactly. And so I'm not saying that we can't have the preachy work, but I think work is often, art is often more accepted Mm. Although it may be just as violent and all over the place when it's shared through testimony. Um, and I feel like my work is stronger than ever as I've been delving more into my story mm. as opposed to being the person who came up with, the, oh, that was a great idea. 
oh, what a d- nice title. Yeah, you talked about immigration, and, but that came off as kind of preachier work. Um, but what if I became that character? What if I was the girl trying to cross the border? Or do all Latinos want to cross the border? My, my aunt is uh, Polish, but she lived in Mexico for like 20 years, married a Mexican, and she was offended by the work, the poem about alienation, because she felt like I was saying, although that was not my intention, that I was trying to tell the story of someone crossing over to the promised land of America and their journey. But is that success? Is that the dream? You know, and maybe I couldn't have unpacked all of that. We yeah. can't save the world in one poem. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't my intent, but it, it was a valid comment that I wasn't ready to accept at the time that, you know, there's a, another story where there are very successful people who stay in Honduras or Mexico. Mm and give more context to the story as opposed to we just want to leave our crappy country. I'm not calling those countries crappy, yeah, yeah, but the quote-unquote. But the discourse, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of pressure and responsibility on storytellers and poets, and I'm glad that we're kind of unpacking some of that. Most neighbors give apple pie to welcome the newly moved in. My family got ours sliced and delivered in different ways. Mine was flung at me soon after we offloaded our lives, randomly crammed. Kitchenware stuff with my He-Man and G.I. Joe figurines. My sister's Sunday through Saturday underwear strewn in non-sequential order with toiletries and what seemed like not enough boxes. I think it came from the Methodist church of all places, which had a playground, only an expletive's throw from my backyard. That word was wrapped in a new carbo minstrel show, redder than the lips of Daddy Rice, and came out of the boy's mouth, a dust devil, which whisked rocks, pebbles, and clods of clay to the soles of my fluorescent green and white L.A. gears. Welcome to Albany, Georgia, I guess. Just as quickly as it came, the dust devil tucked itself back into the repressive South Georgia air and disappeared. Depending on the season, my skin tone meandered from reddish pink to beige and whitish pastels. I faked like I liked Metallica and Tool to fit in. We were cautiously accepted until dad was arrested for possession of drug paraphernalia. The next day, that word was hurled at me at batting practice, beamed me on the right shoulder and grazed my neck on ricochet. I called dad that word once, shouted it in the pillow. I regretted it the moment I said it as it summoned that same dust devil to whirl about my bedroom, blew over my honorable mention field day ribbon and drunkenly stumbled into my baseball trophy. Surely I wasn't racist. Impossible. Had I contracted a mild case of Stockholm syndrome, maybe I had begun to admire the same ones who personally delivered the hurt fresh out of the oven like apple pie for new neighbors. Nowadays, I leave blanks in rap songs which use the words modified form. It's best to leave that whirling dervish of curse words alone and brings up too many traumatic memories, curses and supernatural happenings. They collectively stir up the spirits in Albany, the same ones which cause full term miscarriages, unexpected dust doubles, devils, earthen tremors and out of season tropical storms and hurricanes. Some think of me as a conspiracy theorist as it's no coincidence to me that the worst hurricane in decades bore my first name. Oof, that's lovely. That's from The Million Mile Stare. 
Uh, where can our listeners find the book if they want to find it? On Amazon. On Amazon. Mm-hmm. On Amazon US. Uh, US also have copies in the UAE. I ship to bulk order. And they can message the podcast. I can provide the link. So I do like locally based deliveries. Okay. That's wonderful. Through the Emirates Post Office. Okay. Yeah. We'll add it to the description. I want to move to hip hop um, and your EP. I listened mm-hmm. to a couple of songs and I really enjoyed them. Maybe we can actually insert like a, a snippet uh, into the podcast. Mm-hmm. You probably think these are the same old games. I promise that I changed. speaking only time i had time is that you were soaking and leaking i mean you could spend one night at most for the weekend but after that you had to scat no double stack give me my starter cap and starter jacket and start the packing how hard is that to understand caught on the mac in that 15 with some eastlands and christians stay for kept on pristine temper fade made a chick cream never sold her dreams but ran game to get in jeans i guess i wasn't genuine i so late did whatever to get them to ride that pony a hundred broken hearts up on my dress up yes sir never apologize so it just fester forever i got a beautiful wife now rain finger iced out happily ever after still regret my past life i see i fucked up slipped up tripped up had many hiccups if i was you i wouldn't pick up He gotta take me back Yeah, so I took a pause from hip-hop for a while. So basically in 1999, 2000, when you were a toddler, I think, <laughs> I was in a southern hip-hop group called Therapy. Um, so we were very much so similar to Outkast. I'm sure you would know yeah, Outkast. Yeah. My baby don't... Yeah. yeah, so that was later in Outkast's <laughs> career when they kind of started having bigger, like massive commercial hits. But a lot of their work um, kind of came out of a... Somewhat of a 5% Muslim background. I'm sure you know a little bit about probably the black Muslims like Louis Farrakhan, which came is based in Islam, mm. but with more of an American uh, believing that uh, uh, there are prophets that come from the black community because of the black struggle. So it's kind of a spinoff of Islam or heavily influenced. Um, but a lot of the Southern conscious black community was inspired by these uh, people in the community that taught about you know, politics, governance, um, black rights, black power, as far as black love and things. So I didn't have any older brothers. So at the time, Outkast, a group called Goody Mob, I'm sure you know of CeeLo, the big, the guy who sings, mm-hmm. F you and a F you too, if I was rich, no. I'd still be. Yeah. yeah. Huh. Uh, what's his big song, F you, right? Uh, you know? I can't remember his song, but I remember the person. I think you're riding around town with the girl that oh, I yeah. love. So okay. that's his commercial record. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. if I play a old hip hop record, he's talking about, um, you know, are these walls put up in our apartment to keep crime out, keep crime out, or keep us in? Mm. So you see, this was like the the bigger conscious brothers that we had at the time. So therapy kind of started out of that where we wanted to be different. We didn't want to talk about cars and jewelry and stuff. So. My rap partner named Kendall Johnson, he um, unfortunately died mm. um, March 2020. 
oh. um, which is a big shock to me. It was hard because I lived here for 10 years, so I was away from the Whoa. music. Okay. We had a lot of regional success. We were almost signed by Atlantic Records. We were flown to New York in like 2008 before I moved here. And it, we just realized that that was like our last try. It didn't. We didn't get signed. But there was interest, and and so we kept kind of releasing our own independent projects. We put out about five albums over a ten or eleven year period, and we had a cult following, kind of with our hometown of Albany, Georgia. But when I moved here, I just I was so dependent on Kendall as he was the recording person, he was the engineer, amazing producer. He's produced for Ludacris and other artists and things. He's uh, he got a Grammy assist on one of Ludacris's album. He produced on that album. So he, I was so dependent on him as the producer of the music that when I moved here, I didn't know how to press record. You know, I didn't know how to mix. I had GarageBand for 10 years <laughs> yeah. and never, I use GarageBand now and do so. Erica Badu recorded her album on GarageBand. So like with the correct equipment, you can put a professional product out. So I always had it, but like I was, too dependent to like I don't know if you're like that but like I can turn a mountain a, 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 a anthill of uh, errand if I think about it too much and get into perfectionism it becomes a mountain yeah yeah I mean I depend idea. on Jamil on mental <laughs> It could, be a book, it could be a novel that I think is going to get a Pulitzer Prize, but because I put so much pressure, I'll never write the first page. Yeah, yeah, of course. I understand. So uh, hip hop is a big part of who I am, almost as big as or bigger than being a poet. I love it. I love I love everything about it. I love songwriting. But when he passed, we were starting to talk more before he passed. And he was just encouraging me to like put up our old music on the Internet, like keep putting out music. And when he passed, my morning was... Mm. to listen to him and to get the music back out there. So to start recording. And I literally opened GarageBand like, okay, you can figure this out. And by the end of like one hour, you obviously can see how to press record, how to import the MP3. You know, so that that was the reason behind the EP. It's my first ever solo hip hop project. I've put out two poetry albums, but I never would put out like my own project. I was used to completing a song with him. I would do one good verse. Yeah. But I didn't know how to complete the song. But when he passed, it was like no more excuses. Kind of let go of all that, whatever, shame, pride, ego. Yeah. Why don't you release music or why don't you put out a book? Well, it may not sell enough copies or it may not be what I want it to be. But if it's just one person, if you realize that what you do is a calling, I may not sell one copy. It may be a garbage book. But if a child picks it up and, and they're the future Toni Morrison, they may say, wow, if they could make this crappy book, I can make a book. <laughs> so you never know how your art inspires. But if we hold on to it, yeah, you die with a thousand stories, you know. So I think his passing made me realize the fragility. We go back to fragility of life and just realize that let's get it out there. And so mm. the EP poured out of me. The quality is not what I want. But I didn't know. I bought a USB mic. You know, I was recording with the US. So there's a latency. I didn't know. But after I recorded that, someone, Jay Zazane, was like, no, no, no. <laughs> or a guy uh, from Barco Studios named Andy was like, no, you need, uh, was like an inbox. Like yeah, a mixer. You need the professional yeah. plug-in to plug in. And so now my sound's getting better. But if I never would have put out that lower, inferior quality project, yeah. I wouldn't have grown to where I am now. So now I think the music that I'm doing since the EP, I'm super excited. I'm about to release either another EP or an album. And that inspired me when I knocked out the EP. Well, let's finish the book. This book is four years in the making. My sister illustrated it. She'll message me like, so are we ready? Well, fix this drawing. You know, anything you can do if you have fear to hold back. 
Absolutely. And so it's just been like a birthing process. And now I'm more confident with the other 50 ideas I've had for 10 years. It's like, well, you did that during the pandemic, the EP and the book. And I have friends messaging me now like, man, you're inspiring me. Look at what you did. And so there goes the mediator role, whether you're intending it or not. It could be a total, total ego process. But you indirectly or directly inspire others who also deal with fear, inferiority complexes in their own way. And people who know my rap style, I think if you really know Kendall's or Ken Joe's rap style, I feel like, I know it's going to sound crazy, but the music poured out of me. And when I go back and listen, it sounds like some of his subconsciously, like his rhythms, you know, rap is very, you can tell a rapper, right, by their style of rhythm. Yeah, yeah. And so we call them rhyme schemes. So he may have said something like da, 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 ba, da, ba, da, da. That may not have ever been my style. He's a drummer. I may have had a totally different, unique style on my own. But now, while I'm writing, maybe you'll hear for a couple of minutes, like, when I go, I'm a dude. Yeah. And I feel like he's in heaven, literally, through Allah's blessing, like, yeah. as a conduit, or just blessing me and, and helping me to, to do it. So I'm very excited I mean, about the, the music was side. was done through him it was done because of him because of him, him through him it's it's yeah. a morning process and i think this added a layer for me to listen to the ep now you know with all of this in mind and it's beautiful thank you so yeah thank you for sharing that your ep is called uh, burn before listening right right um and uh, where can our listeners find it so basically like all online music platforms itunes so spotify out. there you go yeah uh, and just okay. type in Paul D, which is my stage name. Paul D. P-A-U-L-D. And you'll see, um, and for therapies music, that's T-H-E-R-I-P-Y. Mm -hmm. And after the R, there's a period, I period, P okay. period, Y period. It's an acronym that means the radiance is purely yours, meaning the light from Allah mm. is every individual's to, sh to share. That's what shine therapy in the darkness. means? Yeah, the radiance is purely yours. Oh, okay. I never knew that. That's your email address, there, too. That was my deep uh, <laughs> yeah. thinking. When we came up with it at 18, we were like, that's going to be so deep. Yeah. And people say, therapy. Yeah, that, no, I'm exactly. like, no, it's just it's therapy. Yeah. So, therapy. Yeah. <laughs> so that's therapy. the background of that. And then, um, and Burn Before Listening was very much a timely piece during a lot of the um, discontent about the uh, police brutality against black people. Uh, so burn before listening. So you'll see in the cover me looking out of a rearview mirror, but around me, it's like everything is on fire. Mm. So there, I, I won't explain each meaning of burn before listening, but I have like four different meanings to that title. But one of them is related to some of the uprisings that were happening when I released it uh, in the end of 2020. Mm. And also burn before listening, like, throw this away, burn it, you know, like this is, it's also a journey of my own, you know, inferiority or like, if you don't like, hey, throw it away before you even listen to yeah, it, yeah, yeah. you know, so I wanted to play on the, 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 the phrase burn before listening. So I have like five meanings, Okay, but that's the, we'll leave uh, it to the listeners to, yeah. to explore There you go. Uh, through the songs. And yeah, speaking of titles, uh, I didn't ask you what uh, the million mile stare means. So basically, as I told you, I wanted to share a little bit about my trauma and what I dealt with as a child. And I came across, you know, poets, we often just absorb any information, an article, you know, a news title or something. And so I, I came across a Wikipedia piece that said the thousand yard stare. And I found out that that's a war related term. 
when a soldier is shell-shocked from the trauma of killing and murder, you sometimes will see, if you look at a picture or something, they're just like gazing off into space from the PTSD or the trauma. And I immediately related that to my upbringing of like, no one can understand a child who's not accepted, who's lonely, who wants his father to be more involved in the play with him, and he doesn't get that validation. And that's a similar trauma. And matter of fact, let's multiply it. Instead of a thousand yards, we're going to make it a million mile. And it has kind of that alliteration to it, like the million mile stare. And so if you look at the cover, there's a young lady kind of also staring off. And so I just want to kind of get people to think about their own, if they've experienced some of those things in childhood, is like, Mm -hmm. I want to give validation to each person's story, whether you were in a physical war or not. We often war internally with ourselves and some of our experiences. And how do you feel like you value vulnerability more as you write more, as you express more? Yeah, I think so. As we talked about, you kind of agree that general topics, uh, how we started in our work, it can come off as preachy or in people's faces. But when you're vulnerable, most people actually will accept a narrative story more than you should do this. You should do this. Okay, I did this. It's like two different approaches. And so I very much so value vulnerability, you know, whether that's in music or cinema, film. Mm -hmm. Would you agree that when you can see someone's personal story, it's like whether I've experienced that or not, it's something beautiful. Yeah, I think in the real and the raw. I think we we live maybe I know that's a general statement, but we tame ourselves because you know we cannot always be vulnerable. We are maybe told that, or we ex- we assume that you know, especially when we put on blazers and we're in a you know in a work setting or we're playing a certain role in society, we tend to keep it in, right? Or it's it's like the the image of someone in a necktie that goes to a pub after work, drinks, and only then does this person cry. Mm-hmm. And usually it's it's a male. You know, I see more males that are, you know, that hold themselves together, mm. that bite their cheeks and refuse to cry because of, you know, this whole upbringing of your boy. Toxic masculinity. Yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. You're a boy, you keep it together, you don't cry. Crying is for girls. And that's another conversation we can get into and I have gotten into it a couple of times before, and it's often not that fruitful. But I think if poetry and, and writing and self-expression does anything to me, it's it's just this unpacking process. I think this is our our theme today. It's the unpacking process, the deconstructing process of the creative process, you know. And it's it's a painful. You said birthing, you know. Yeah. It it does feel like something grows in you, and then it, you know it comes out, and it's a beautiful crying mm. you know it's the first thing we do we cry our our eyes out we we yell when we we come into the world and i think this to me is very symbolic and i always ask people when was the last time you cried because really like when was the last time you bawled your eyes out because that is something that i feel you know it purges we live in a very stressful world more and more and uh, we need that. And I think if there's anything that I wish uh, I can be a mediator for, not just in the poetry platform, but even in normal conversations with friends, it's to say, hey, like, let, let it, it out, out yeah. please. Because. Well, vulnerability is also an act of bravery, right? Because so many people follow 
the appearance that people want of them, whether that's toxic masculinity and you're taught that sharing your emotion is weak. You know, if you're taught that at an early age, then you're going to internalize that. And then, you know, I think men die at a younger age. Yeah, than because women. of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah holding yeah. a lot of stuff in. And I believe in metaphysics, you know, so if you internalize pain and depression, that could show itself through illness, uh, cancer and things like that. But as your body responds, a plant responds to, you know that, right? If you speak negative thoughts uh, or things to a plant versus a one that you may say something positive to the 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 other the plant that received the negative information will die at a higher rate and i think that's that's not a dorian study i think that's a real <laughs> that's like real research there yeah, uh, but don't trust me <laughs> but google talking hate to a plant um but i say that to say that's that, my next poem hey, but i say i say <laughs> yeah. that because if a plant which arguably has no central brain style system can be affected by negativity then as adults I think we very much so uh, experience those things. So, yeah, I think, you know, if anybody has vulnerability it, and, it, and again, sharing too much, that's in the eye, that's in the eye or the ear of, you know, yeah. the beholder. Yeah. Right. Someone has the right to say, you know, you shared something too explicit from your childhood and that wasn't anyone's business. Well, thank you so much for sh- that may be because they have experienced trauma that they're not comfortable addressing. So Definitely. I think it's a. It's a personal decision, and that's up to you how much you wish or, or choose to share or not share. But I know for me, as I've moved into a place in my work where I'm not afraid to speak about the good and bad of my childhood, it helps me to reflect on who I am. And I'm starting to connect the pieces that if I'm dealing with anything mental health related, it really is coming back to, like, have I healed mm-hmm. from the pain? Like, I get emotional when I read housewarming gift i caught a tear i yeah. thought it was like irritation but I'm like, i saw that but i don't cry often yeah. Yeah. i still deal with toxic masculinity and the ramifications of that but i still as i think back to these incidents i think back to that pain and it's still very real today so that means i haven't fully healed from it yeah yeah mm. i think it's it's a, it's a process it's a beautiful mm. long process yeah. that without i mean without it it's it's really it gets dull and I'm glad that you're sharing like you've sought therapy <clears throat> because in the black community all over the world, but specifically like in the black community, as there is a lot of shame from only 150 years ago or less yeah. slavery and things of that mm-hmm. nature. So, you know, we've very much so been told that if you seek therapy, that something's wrong. Mm-hmm. But affluent people get therapy because they shop too much. You know, yeah, yeah. they work it out with a professional. And I think we have to normalize. I've heard I don't want to speak for, again, the Arab world, but I've heard from some local females mm-hmm. here that sometimes speaking about depression and mental health can also be seen as like a private matter. Definitely. And it's just evolving. Uh, Nabiha Nahyan, one of the poets who performs frequently at rooftop she shamelessly talks about mental health issues and i think would you agree that things are kind of changing oh yeah there's definitely. More it's becoming more accepted. accessible yeah. there's more vocabulary for it as well but uh, in the past um these things were closed off? i mean there's no word for anxiety in arabic okay as as we know it in english okay. uh, or insecurity mm. the word does not exist i looked i asked insecurity was it seen as a spiritual weakness maybe in the past or was I don't there a reason? Know, but I mean, okay. just the, you know, the, the common usage of the word, I feel very insecure in this relationship or I feel very secu- insecure in this job. Uh, it's just my insecurities. There is no exact term. And I think this language that is becoming more accessible in English 
will hopefully open doors to, you know, finding expressions in Arabic. And it's the same with LGBTQ vocabulary, right? The words don't exist. Also, mental health topics. And mental though, health. Just I mean, whether it's yeah. the wording or not, just the fact that if a local or people want to share that, it, it may be somewhat, my guess is that it may be a correlation to the family structure and those things are strictly guarded and protected, exactly. right? And if you say that this happened to me, then that's putting a window into very private matters as my, again, I, we cannot generalize the whole Arab world, but from my experiences, family is very much guarded and protected. Yeah, and, yeah, and many, I mean, and that's why this guarding and protecting uh, means you're not talking enough about it. Right. You're not maybe even thinking enough about it. Therefore, there's no language for it. I understand. And yeah. that's why the language, you know, and, and a, a dear friend told me, it's not about language, Farah, it's live. The language will then happen. Right. Live your desires, live these struggles, actually embrace them and talk about them. And that's when you will find words for things. Because words are not just a theoretical, you know, there's no factory that just produces words. It, things need to be needed. That's why it's an act of bravery to share things. Absolutely. Because you evolve the conversation. Absolutely. And normalize that it's okay. You know, it's not a weak, if you think about it, it looks like a weakness to share mental health concerns. But it's a strength because it's so difficult to do. But it's a, an act of bravery to even say that I'm going to seek improvement. When everyone else is saying, what's wrong with you? Yeah, yeah, It's actually something right with you because you're trying to become a better person. And I think we have to continue normalizing that. So yeah. kudos to you for for seeking that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I also have a, a mother that helps this conversation, right? It's easy to talk to her. That's good. And I think that's what we need. And, and that's what a good conversation is. And having people to talk to, but that's, what it, that's the key. We also need our parents to support, again, our, whatever our perspective, your mother's perspective is not the same of your childhood. And so I'm not speaking about your mother specifically, but mm -hmm. like with mine, it does not mean that that parent was somehow deficient in their parenting. No parent is perfect, but you could have the most perfect upbringing, you know, grow up in the royal family of the UK or something like that. But you, you have a right to experience. <laughs> That's far from perfect. I understand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, people can't see my quote fingers. Yeah, over yeah, here. yeah. But my thing, my thing is, even if it's an affluent upbringing, some of those people are some of the most damaged people. And so, I think we need our parents to be uh, just speaking about my own experience to be more open minded to our journey. And if I say I felt like I dealt with neglect, emotional neglect in my childhood, I can understand how a parent would get offended and say, "No, nope, I was, there, you know," and they were there and they loved me. But I have the right to have experienced yeah. those feelings Definitely. and to work them out on my own. And the best parents are the ones that say, you know, let's talk more about it or seek therapy. And I, I pray that you feel like I did my best as a parent. Yeah. But I it's know that it, right? yeah, it could have been better. Like, yeah. And I want I mean, I'm, I may share a poem that I really like. That's not mine. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, go, I have a couple of um, uh, poetry books in front of me that I that have been with me during mm -hmm. this pandemic. And maybe I want to ask you if you have a, a poem that's been that you've been reading or revisiting quite a lot uh, in the past, I don't know, year or so, even if you can just talk about it. Uh, yeah, you can take a moment to think about that. I'm a big fan of Pat Patricia Smith. Um, she's a National uh, Book Award finalist and actually won the most poetry slams at the National Poetry Slam, mm. which... Um, I believe they're remixing how they present that festival, but for the longest, it was the nation's biggest poetry 
festival mm-hmm. and competition. Um, so she won that as an individual many times. She came here actually in 2015 and, and featured at our anniversary oh, really? show. But she okay. has a famous poem that you can find on YouTube uh, on Deaf Poetry Jam, which yeah. the older poets know that that was like the platform on HBO through Russell Simmons. So she performed a poem called Skinhead, and which is so powerful. What's so powerful about it is she's a brown, chocolate-complected black woman performing a poem from the perspective of a Nazi skinhead. Oh. And you literally believe what, during that poem that she's a skinhead. Like, you f- you're not looking at her anymore. Mm. She's talking about them mm. as if she's the racist white man who wants to end the world of you know, black people. Mm. And I think more than anything, although I may not be reflecting on that poem recently, Mm. that poem has stayed with me for so long because it shows me the power of words that you can literally become another person. If the words are strong and crafted, that there's nothing you can or cannot do within a poem, you know? So it kind of, that poem inspired me to see like the possibilities Mm. of poetry. Um, Also a poet that I'm really impressed with is Pages Matam. And he is, I believe, D.C. based, Washington, D.C. based. English is not even his first language, um, but he's a crafter. So I love crafting. I'm sure in English and Arabic, as a poetry lover, you probably love that each word is like deliberately put on paper. And that's what I love about page poetry as initially through spoken word. I put out a book when I was like 22. It was just like my spoken word on paper. And I was ashamed of it because it's like it read. It performs well. Yeah, it doesn't read well. It doesn't well. read well. So yeah. this journey has also been for me to prove to myself that I also am proficient on Paige. Um, but Pages has a poem called Pinata, and it's about him overhearing a person talking about someone that they overheard was assaulted, sexually assaulted or raped, and about how they deserved it or something like mm. that. So he goes through his own personal history of you know, being abused by a woman when he was a kid, but also how his students have dealt with it. And he's like, basically tell them, tell this girl that she deserved it. So it's like a conversation with this ignorant person on the bus about how people are abused and treated like pinatas. Mm. So I'm just a fan of any poet who can craft language and can help, you know, they craft it in a way in which you see it and you feel it. And that's what you love about the best poetry. I don't know if you can relate, but like when you hear the best of the best do their best work, it's like hair. Absolutely. It's hair raising and you don't get that every day. But when you, when you hear it or I can't put a finger on it, but when you read it or hear it, it's like, how did they do that? Absolutely. I mean, I'd like to pick a poem for you to read. I don't know if you're interested in doing that. It's one of my absolute favorites. This is a dry read, everyone. Yeah. For the record, I've never read this. So he's never read it. It might have a couple of words. Um, So reply back to the podcast and tell it. Was it a good dry read? All right. This is a collection by Jack Gilbert. And this is a dry read by myself. The Forgotten Dialect of the Heart. How astonishing it is that language can almost mean and frightening that it does not quite. Love, we say. God, we say. Rome and Michiko, we write. And the words get it wrong. We say bread, and it means according to which nation. French has no word for home, and we have no word for strict pleasure. 
a people in northern India is dying out because their ancient tongue has no words for endearment. I dream of lost vocabularies that might express some of what we no longer can. Maybe the Etruscan text would finally explain why the couples on their tombs are smiling, and maybe not. When the thousands of mysterious Sumerian tablets were translated, they seemed to be business records, but what if they are poems or psalms? My joy is the same as 12 Ethiopian goats standing silent in the morning light. O oh Lord, thou art slabs of salt and ingots of copper as grand as ripe barley lithe under the wind's labor. Her breasts are six white oxen loaded with bolts of long fibered Egyptian cotton. My love is a hundred pitchers of honey. Shiploads of Thuya are what my body wants to say to your body. Giraffes are this desire in the dark. Perhaps the spiral Minoan script is not a language, but a map. What we feel most has no name but amber, archers, cinnamon, horses, and birds. A few mispronounced words, I think, but <laughs> hey, nobody will ever catch it. <laughs> <laughs> but I think with this poem in particular, it's okay. I love that's ling- what he's saying. Yeah, that's what he's saying. Yeah. I actually am a big fan of linguistics. So I think the, the best poets also have that as a part of their tool belt. So one thing in my book, I was talking about my grandmother having Alzheimer's. So the, the poem's called Cooking with Alzheimer's. So I tell about that story. And I say that the when she her, her, her mind started getting frazzled and mixed up, and I said the words came out J-D-M-B-L-U. Mm. So instead of saying the words came out jumbled, yeah, yeah, I yeah. kind of play with it on yeah. paper. So sometimes you can also play with, like, some, words falling on a page and things um i'm never i'm not sure if you've heard of um steven pinker uh called the uh the language of humans or it's basically about the linguistics of i guess humans and how when you're born just like a turtle knows to go to the sea yeah babies come out saying goo goo ga ga and those are all the phonetics that become parts of all languages. Yeah. And we start weaving them, weaving them and yeah. figuring out what we need and what we don't need. And so um, a very beautiful book, if you like linguistics. But I could tell uh, is a lot of his poetry kind of lingu- linguistics based. Not necessarily, based? Okay. no. But he has a couple that where he does that. But I think this is my absolute favorite so far. And do you play on that as like a part of your tool belt? I think since you're you, you're uh, you're mult, uh, multilinguistic and you're writing. I, I think I'm starting to. Mm-hmm. Um I started, I embarked on one project that I hopefully will end um, soon and without uh, being insecure about it. But it, it, it really is like um, a dictionary entry. Every word oh, I look cool. at and I like really deconstruct it, but then I deconstruct it in a way that's mine. Mm. That It starts like a dictionary, but then you're like, whoa, that's not a dictionary. Yeah. It looks like a dictionary, but then it stops being a dictionary. Uh, it, it stops giving a definition. You're like, oh... That's what is happening, and I just pick a word, and then I, mm-hmm. I go with it, um, and I just it, I go to the etymology of the word, the the, you know, the Latin or Greek root usually, or the Germanic root, and then I compare it to Arabic. Sometimes, like we have no word for the that. P- the Pinker book is called the Language Instinct. Okay. Actually. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll keep that in mind. Right. 
So this was beautiful. Yeah, we talked about like 53 different things. We, we talked <laughs> about 53 different things, but this is it what together, this right? podcast is about. Um, so thank you for being here. This is one of the best catch-ups uh, yeah, with a friend. It's not really an interview, right? <laughs> like this is really one of the best catch-ups I can ever ask for yeah, with a friend. It was beautiful. Uh, so thank you to our listeners and to Jamil Adas, who's with us here, always making things happen with the poetry hood. We hope that you uh, enjoy this episode and that you look forward with us to the next episodes. Thank you to Dorian for being with us today. And we'll have all the links to the book, to the EP, all this information will be in the episode description. And if you have any comments or any questions, please don't hesitate to write to the Poetry Hood podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm your host, Farah Shamma. Salam. Salam.